through God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. Thank you that it is living and active. Thank you that as we hold it in our hands, we have all of the truth that we need for life, for eternity, and to know you in a personal way. So we pray, Father, this morning once more, open it uh, to our hearts, to our minds. May we receive it as from you. Guide us by your Holy Spirit into your truth. Speak through me, your servant, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let me begin this morning by asking you a simple question. Have you ever stumbled over something? Hands up if you've ever stumbled. Okay, all of us have stumbled, right? We've, we've all done it. Now, now a little bit more. Have you ever stumbled over something and fallen awkwardly? Pretty much everyone as well, right? We, we've all done that at, at some point or another. Now, the vast majority of stumbles and awkward falls end harmlessly with nothing more than maybe a bruised ego. However, some stumbles and some falls can actually be quite serious. According to the National Safety Council of America, in the year 2019 alone, over 8 million people were hospitalized due to falls. Over 8 million people in the United States alone in one year. Of those 8 million people, some 39,443 people died from a fall in one year. Now, my wife Leanne has her own story of a time when, as a teenager, she was at home and headed downstairs. But just out of sight, on the second stair from the top, something had been placed there. So when she stepped down, she stepped directly on top of it, which caused her to stumble, trip, and fall backwards. So she fell back onto her elbows, which, right on the funny bone, she says, drove right into that metal strip on the top of the stairs, both elbows, straight down. Well, this cut them open, and then to add you know, insult to injury, she then proceeded to fall the rest of the way down the full flight of stairs to the bottom. So there she lay, literally bruised and bleeding. She said later that the pain was so bad that she actually passed out and fainted. And uh, the legacy of that fall was that her elbows have bothered her ever since. So that's always been a lingering issue that she's had because of this one stumble and fall. But now the question, what was it on that top stair that she stumbled over? Anyone want to guess what it was that had been placed there? It was a Bible. (laughs) Of all things in the world, to stumble over is a Bible. Like, how ironic, right? To literally stumble over the Word of God. But as we come now to our text in Romans chapter 9, verses 27 and 30 to 33, we're, we're going to see that is almost exactly what happens to the nation of Israel. You know, to, to stumble over a physical Bible, how ironic. Something good, God's word, his revealed truth. And yet we see that Israel stumbled over the truth of God as well. And they stumbled and fell badly with catastrophic results. We saw last week the problem that Paul began to address, that Israel as a nation had been spiritually set aside or cut off by God. And now in Romans 9.27, Paul quotes the prophet Isaiah saying this about their condition. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. So here we see that God had kept his word to Abraham. Your descendants will be as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And this is being referenced here by Isaiah. They're numerous. God has kept his word. And yet, 
of this vast multitude, only the remnant will be saved. And so here we see that though some Jews, a small remnant, were saved by placing faith in Jesus Christ as their Messiah, most were not. Most were not, and the consequences for the nation as a whole were simply catastrophic. For Paul then continues in verse 29 to continue quoting Isaiah. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah. Now, everyone remembers, remembers the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? The two neighboring cities, they were, they were utterly destroyed by God with fire and brimstone. Why? Because of their utter immorality and depravity. They, they, were, they were depraved to such an extent that we see the account of, of them accosting angels coming and, and trying to force them into, into having intercourse with them and, and all sorts of despicable things that were being done in Sodom and Gomorrah. To the extent God says, this is it, I'm going to wipe them out, and only Lot and his daughters were saved. And so here we see that Isaiah is saying that in the same way, God, w- God was so angry with us that unless he had left a remnant, we would have been wiped out in the same way. And so this is absolutely massive, what Paul is talking about here. This is absolutely devastating, the consequences of their unbelief. And in fact, just a few short years after Paul writing this letter to the Romans, Jerusalem would in fact be attacked and destroyed by the Romans And Israel itself would cease to exist as a nation. The people would either be killed, taken to slavery, and the remnant would be scattered to the nations of the world. Now, as we consider this, and we consider that Israel ceased to exist as a nation, we're not just talking about a small consequence. Sodom and Gomorrah, it's it's believed that where the Dead Sea sits today is basically the spot where Sodom and Gomorrah was. Right? There's no remnant left of it. It's underwater, it's dead. It's salted the earth. Nothing can grow there. And so they're saying, Isaiah is saying that in just the same way, Israel was dead. The the borders ceased to exist as a functional nation state. When, When we were in Israel, one of the things I learned that I hadn't known previously was that the Romans wanted to make so sure that Israel was blotted out from history that they renamed the land Palestine. And the reason they named the land Palestine, it was actually a play off of the word Philistine. Because they thought, who is the worst enemy of Israel in history? And it's the Philistines. So let's name the nation after their worst enemy. Hence, it became known forever as Palestine. And to this very day, there is still a fight happening over whether it should be Israel or Palestine. Depending on which side of the Ishmael or Isaac descendants you come from. And so we've seen this play out through history. The, the consequences for Israel are catastrophic. Yet, in spite of all of that, God still had mercy on Israel. How? He preserved a remnant. He did not cut off Israel entirely, but preserved a small remnant of Jews who believed and were saved and carried on the legacy of faith within that small remnant of Jews And so this begs the question now, over what did Israel stumble so badly? Well, if we drop down to the end of verse 32, Paul tells us. He says, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. The stumbling stone. What is that? 
Well, in the original Greek, the word stumbled was defined as to strike, slam, or dash against, and was commonly used to describe a traveler striking an obstacle with their foot, which would cause them to slip, trip, or fall. And the word stumbled also carried the idea of taking offense at something. If you stumble over someone's words or actions, you're taking offense at it. It could also be a a way to, to describe you being annoyed at someone, or even to the point of being enraged to stumble over over someone else or their actions or words. And here we see that in in the New Testament, wherever this word is used, it's primarily used to describe a figurative or spiritual stumbling. So we could say like stubbing your baby toe on the coffee table in the middle of the night. Who's ever done that, right? (laughs) Like stubbing your baby toe, so is someone who stumbles over the stumbling stone. So what, or rather, who is this stumbling stone? Well, you already know. It's none other than the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is Israel's stumbling stone. And just as the people of Israel stumbled over Jesus, people have been stumbling over Jesus ever since. And so now let's ask, what are some of the primary reasons that people stumble over the person of Jesus Christ? Why did Israel stumble? Well, the primary reason that Israel stumbled is this. Israel stumbled over Jesus because they thought they could earn salvation by their good works. They stumbled over Jesus because they thought they could earn their salvation. This was Israel's main problem with Jesus and his teaching. In verses 31 to 33 of Romans chapter 9, we read this as Paul continues. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Now let me highlight for you the key phrase in that passage. They pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. If you want to underline that in your Bible, if you underline things, that is the key to this passage, understanding it. They pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works, referring to the righteousness of God. So they thought they could attain God's righteousness for themselves by their works. And so they pursued it by their works, in many cases, zealously. Like the Pharisees, they, per, they pursued it with zeal, with passion, with effort, with diligence. They pursued this righteousness by works. In other words, the super-religious Jews thought they could work their way to salvation, earn it by the works of the law, and in so doing, they actually believed that by their own merit, they could be good enough to come face-to-face with the holy, holy, holy God of heaven and earth. They thought they could be good enough to to face the same God who on Mount Sinai, Moses asked, Lord, show me your glory. I want to see your face. And he says, you couldn't handle it. It would kill you. But I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. I'll cover you with my hand and I'll cause my glory to pass by you. And so God passes by Moses and we know God protected him from his Shekinah glory. But when Moses comes down the mountain, guess what? He's glowing. Literally, his face is glowing just just from having been that close 
to the manifest glory of God. And this is the same God that Israel thought we can come face to face with him. Yeah, we can do it. We'll just really try hard and we'll come in his glorious presence and we can do this, guys. Come on, we're going to work hard at it. And in short, in thinking this way, they were deceiving themselves. And further, they didn't think they needed Jesus to be, in a sense, their shield from that glory of God. They thought they could save themselves, and in a sense and in a word, they were self-righteous. Self-righteous. And today, this is the exact same sort of person who says things like, You know, I'm a pretty good person. You know, I, I do the best I can. I, I volunteer my time. You know, I'm, I'm pretty generous. I, I'm kind. I'm honest. You know, I, 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 don't, I don't need Jesus. I'm good. I've got this. And you know, if, if anyone could have ever achieved salvation by their own effort, aside from perhaps the Apostle Paul himself, was another man named Martin Luther. In 1505, when Martin was 21 years old, he abandoned a promising career in law and entered the monastery of the Augustinian hermits at Erfurt. And as he later said, this was not only an academic pursuit, but rather a desperate attempt to save his own soul. You see, Luther had become convicted of his sins. He felt a disconnect from God. And so he decided he would pursue his salvation with all of the zeal he could muster. And so in those days, the monastic orders prescribed ways by which a seeking soul could find God. And so Luther, with the determination and strength that characterized his entire life, he gave himself rigorously to these tasks prescribed to him. He fasted and prayed every day. He devoted himself to menial work, and above all, he practiced penance, confessing his sins, even the most trivial, for hours and hours on end until his superiors weird of the exercise of having to listen to all of his thought-up things that he could confess. Finally, they said, don't come back to us until you actually have a sin worth confessing. Luther's piety gained him a reputation for being the most exemplary of monks. The others looked up to him for his devotion and his zeal. Later on, he wrote to the Duke of Saxony saying, I was indeed a pious monk and followed the rules of my order more strictly than I can express. If ever a monk could obtain heaven by his monkery, I should certainly have been entitled to it. Of this, all the friars who have known me can testify. If I had continued much longer, I should have killed myself because of my watchings, prayers, readings, and other labors. And yet, despite all of this, Luther still found no peace in his soul. He found no connection to the Lord. The religious wisdom of the day instructed him to satisfy God's demand for righteousness by doing good works. But what works, thought Luther, what works can come from a heart such as mine? How can I stand before the holiness of my judge with works polluted at their very source within the wellspring of my heart? Then Luther began, at long last, an in-depth study of the Bible. And there he found the book of Romans. And finally, diving into the book of Romans with the same zeal and fervor, finally it came alive to him. And he realized what his core problem was. He had been trying to earn salvation by works of human righteousness. When the righteousness he needed was not human at all. It was divine righteousness he needed. 
And this could only become his if God graciously gave it to him, which he had done by the cross of Jesus Christ. Luther had been seeking righteousness by means of his human works and effort, when what he needed was to humbly accept Christ's righteousness applied to him by faith alone. It was then and only then that Luther's soul was finally set at peace with God. He went on from there to be used mightily by God. Famously, he nailed his 95 thesis to the Wittenberg church door, and we know God used this to help spark the Protestant Reformation, which lit the fires of revival and changed the world for Christ, of which we are a part of his legacy. And in Isaiah chapter 64, verses 5 to 6, the prophet asks this question. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. You see, my friends, apart from being clothed, In the righteousness of Jesus Christ, our very best version of ourselves, our very best, our very best days with our most noble thoughts, our most noble actions, our most gracious words, our most extravagant generosity, all of these things combined, listen, are like filthy rags before the holiness of God. Filthy rags. And if we go into God's glorious presence, remember Moses on that mountaintop, if we go into God's glorious presence, dressed up in our personal Sunday best of our best version of ourselves, and we go in that way, the prophet says, we will all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins will sweep us away into the outer darkness, separated from God for all of eternity. So it comes down to this. Either we are clothed in Christ's perfect, spotless righteousness by faith alone, or we are not. For there is absolutely nothing that we can add to Christ's righteousness. Not one thing can we add. It is not Christ plus anything else. It is Christ alone. Salvation, remember, is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, period. But for most of the Jews, going back to Israel, for most of the Jews, in their self-righteous pride, they could not accept this. They stubbornly refused to humble themselves and accept the fact that they were sinners who could not save themselves. They thought there was something that they needed to add. Robert Haldane said, A free salvation becomes an offense to men on account of their pride. Men's desire is to do something, to merit their salvation, at least in part. You see, it's almost exclusively the self-righteous. The self-righteous heart, the self-righteous mind, often outwardly even religious people like the Jews. Remember, they were highly religious. They were the ones who stumbled the worst over this because of hidden pride deep within. Wherein, in in stark contrast to this, it is those who everyone can visibly see are the down and outers, the, the ones the Pharisees just called blanket, the sinners. It was they who did not stumble over this. Why? Because they knew full well that they were helpless. 
They were hopeless. They were lost in their sin. They had no self-righteous pride to cling to. So when Jesus came to say, hey, I've got living water for you. I've got bread of life. I've got my healing touch for your souls. Just believe in me. They said, sign me up. I want this. I need this. And so they did not stumble because of their pride. They knew instinctively that they needed a Savior. And in verse 30, we see that the Gentiles are described by Paul like this. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. By faith. The Jews stumbled. Why? Because of self-righteous pride. The Gentiles who weren't even pursuing righteousness in the first place have obtained it. Why? Because they, they were willing to take it by faith alone. They knew we don't have any works to bring. We'll just believe. And so even though unlike the Jews, those Gentiles did not have anything to bring, when they heard the message of the gospel, they believed by faith. And it's the same for us, my friends. That's it. Faith alone. What do we have to bring to a holy God other than our faith? What can we bring? How about you? Let me ask, are you clothed in your own self-righteousness? You know, we come to church on Sunday morning, we, we dress our best typically, you know, we, we call it our Sunday best for a reason. And so we, we try to bring the best version of ourselves. We, we comb our hair, uh, we, we do all those extra things to make ourselves presentable, and we bring our best version. But remember, my friends, our best version before God is still like filthy rags. So let me ask, are you clothed in your own self-righteousness or are you clothed in the pure righteousness of Jesus Christ? Because what it really comes down to is this. Can you humbly admit the fact that you are a helpless sinner in need of a Savior? Or are you still harboring pride in your heart? The pride that says, I have to add something to it. The pride that says, I have to do something. And you keep trying in this way to be your own savior. If that describes you in any way, here's, here's the prescription, my friends. Here it is. It's simple. It really is. It's simple, but it's hard. You have to humble yourself. You have to humble yourself by looking at who God is and look at who you are in relation to him. Remember, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, the glory that was manifest to Moses on top of Mount Sinai. This is the glory we speak of. We are so fallen in front of that. We have to humble ourselves and recognize that we have nothing to bring. We need Jesus. This is the prescription. It's simple, but it's hard to lay down our pride. And so we must. Israel had to. A few did, a remnant, but the majority did not. And so the consequences were catastrophic. And now this leads us to the second reason that people stumble over Jesus. And the reason is this. They stumble over the cross. They stumble over the cross. There's a reason we have a cross standing up here at the front of our church. I know we get used to it, but we need to look at it because it has to always remain before our eyes, the cross. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 to 23, Paul wrote this about the cross. Listen. He says, Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. 
But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Now here we see another major reason the Jews stumbled over Jesus was the message of Christ crucified, the cross. Because you see, to the Jewish mind, they could only think of their Messiah as being a mighty military leader, a a political champion, a king, one who had come and set them free from the oppression of the Romans. And he would then establish an earthly kingdom with Mount Zion, Jerusalem as his seat of power. And the disciples envisioned themselves sitting at the right and left hand of his throne. And remember, famously, James and John even petitioned their mother, petitioned him to say, hey, can those those seats be reserved for my boys? That's how the Jews envisioned their Messiah. And so for them, they were looking for the lion of the tribe of Judah. And when they looked in the prophecies, they could find him there. Yes, he will be a king. He will be a lion. But they missed entirely all the prophecies that revealed he would first come, as Isaiah said, as a sacrificial lamb. They were looking for the lion when he first had to come as a lamb. And the very idea of the cross offended them. And so the Jewish mind rebelled against a suffering savior nailed to a Roman cross of shame and humiliation and death. And as a result, most of the Jews stumbled over and rejected Jesus because he failed to meet their lofty expectations. They were offended by his teachings. And most of all, they were offended by the message of the cross. And further still, Paul says that to the Gentiles, the cross of Christ, they stumbled over as well, but for a different reason. Because to the Gentile mind, it appeared to be foolishness. For they could not understand how one who died, seemingly in weakness and in defeat, could now somehow help and save them. They also couldn't understand why anyone in their right mind would receive the call of Jesus. The call to come and die with him. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must first deny himself, pick up his cross daily, and follow me. Because when you think about it, who wants to die? Who wants to die to themselves? Who wants to die not only to their sin, but also to their own ambitions, their own dreams, their own selfish desires? And so just as the Jews stumbled over the offense of the cross, the Gentiles stumbled over the foolishness of the cross, so too many today still stumble over the cross of Christ. Dr. Duncan tells the story of a dear friend named Douglas McMillan. Douglas McMillan had been a great Scottish athlete in their Highland Games. And Douglas was your prototypical massive man, a strong man. He could toss the saber, throw the hammer, and do all the heavy lifting events with relative ease. Many believed he was well on his way to becoming the Scottish national champion. But despite his success in sport, Douglas sensed something within him was still empty. Something was missing. And then one day, he heard the clear message of the gospel preached. And the words rang true. And yet, he struggled mightily against becoming a Christian. Mostly because he didn't want to let go of so many things within his life that he took pleasure in. You see, Douglas was your prototypical ladies' man. And and he enjoyed getting around with the ladies. He was also known as a hard partier, a hard drinker. He enjoyed all of these things that the world offered him. He liked this lifestyle and he didn't want to let it go. 
He liked his reputation. He liked all the women, and he liked doing whatever he wanted to do, whenever he wanted to do it, however he wanted to do it, with no one to tell him otherwise. In short, he liked having zero accountability for his life. He also knew, after hearing the message, that if he went to the cross of Christ, all of that had to change. And yet, he still struggled. He resisted because he didn't want to let it go. And so he began to wonder, perhaps there's some way that I could have both. Perhaps I could have both Jesus and keep my pleasures. And so one day the minister came to speak with him about the gospel. And after some discussion on this matter, the minister finally said to him bluntly, Douglas, it's like this. In this hand, I'll give you Christ. And in the other hand, I'll give you everything else that you have to give up in order to embrace Christ. Which is it going to be? Christ or everything else? And Douglas, reflecting on this moment later, said to his minister, You didn't make it easy on me. And I'm so thankful for that. Because in that moment, Douglas finally reached out his hand. He took the hand of his minister in which he held Christ And he said he would rather have Christ than everything else. And so having gone to the cross of Christ and there finally dying to himself, God raised Douglas back up to new life in a mighty way. And Douglas Macmillan went on to become a very effective evangelist in the nation of Scotland for years to come. You see, the call of the cross, the call of Jesus to come and die with me, but in dying you will find life. Life for today, life for eternity. But the call to come and die remains a stumbling stone for so many. And for so long in much of our sadly watered down, modern day Christianity, people are still trying to have it both ways. Like Douglas, they think, can't I have both? Can't I have Christ in all of my, my pleasures, all of my sin? I want both. I want to I blend them together. But Jesus never allowed that. Because the cross of Christ simply does not work that way. It is an invitation, come and die with me in every way. And so my friends today, if you are still trying to have it both ways, Jesus and the world, Jesus and your sinful pleasures, the call of the cross is decide. Choose this day whom you will serve. Which one is it going to be? Is it going to be Christ or everything else? Because it can't be both. But let me just say that whatever you think that you're going to lose by going to the cross of Christ, listen, whatever you think you're going to lose, you have far, far more to lose if you do not. Far more. For as Jesus said, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world, everything? You can gain everything. What good is it If you lose your own soul. Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Do you see? Your eternal soul is of infinite more value than any temporary pleasure or treasure that this world can offer us. So let me just encourage you today. Stop trying to have it both ways. Decide once and for all to die fully to yourself. And surrender your life fully to Christ alone. For when you do, listen, 
Jesus Christ will cease to be a stumbling stone, an obstacle in your path, and he will become the the stepping stone to life everlasting, to the abundant life where you think, oh, I'm giving up these pleasures, and instead you will discover joy. You will discover fulfillment. You will discover life. You will discover purpose. You will discover all of the good things that Christ offers to those who are willing to die to themselves, pick up their cross daily, and follow after him. You will find life, my friends. Whatever you are giving up, you will find life. So let me encourage you. Go to Christ. Let him be your cornerstone. Psalm 118, 22 to 23 gave this prophecy of Christ hundreds of years earlier. Isaiah said, The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now in Matthew 21, 42, speaking of himself to the Pharisees, Jesus applied this exact prophecy to himself. And then in verse 44, he told the Pharisees, Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. So you see, either we will be humbled and broken so that we can believe in Christ and he will re-put the pieces together, or we will be hardened and end up being crushed by the stone. So either we fall on Christ and in so doing we're humbled, we're broken but put back together or we resist and the stone will come crashing down on us and that'll be the end of us. You see, no one can encounter the living stone of Jesus Christ and remain the same. We can put it this way. You will either stumble and fall over him and become humble and call on him. Jesus will either be your stumbling stone or your cornerstone. The choice is yours. And this teaching of having Jesus as your cornerstone is such a great picture of what it really means to be a Christ follower. Because listen to what the definition of what a cornerstone is. The cornerstone or foundation stone is the first stone set in the construction of a building. So any foundation has the cornerstone laid first. And it is important since all other stones will be set in reference to the cornerstone. Thus, it determines the position of the entire structure. Now, did you catch that? All other stones will be set in reference to this stone, the cornerstone. And what a great picture that is for us that Jesus is our cornerstone, meaning that the direction for everything else in our life is set in direct reference to him. So that means he comes first and everything else comes after. Everything else is laid in reference to him. So this means that Jesus, as the chief cornerstone of your life, he will determine the decisions of your life. He will determine the direction of your life. He will determine the shape of your life. He will determine the beliefs of your life. He will determine what you do, what you think, in every single aspect as your life is built stone by stone, layer by layer upon him as the chief cornerstone, the reference for everything in your life. And further than that, as the cornerstone, he is the anchor point of our life. He is the anchor. You see, our lives, we, we have storms, we have winds, we have all sorts of things that assault us and assail us. And right now, collectively, we've been going through one in our, in our nation, in our world, and people are being tossed to and fro. 
in all directions. And yet, Jesus, as our anchor point, our, our cornerstone, holds us fast. And in my prayer time, just a week or two ago, I was, I was praying about what's going on in our world. I was praying about what's going on with, with everything and trying to just say, Lord, hold us fast. Keep us, keep us firm. Keep me firm. Keep me from being washed away. And this doesn't happen very often, but sometimes when it does, it's, it's memorable when the Lord gives me a picture in my mind in a prayer time, and I know this was from him, because in my prayer time I was praying about this exact thing, and he gave me a picture of a rocky shoreline and a beach and sand around it, and there was a big surf just pounding the shoreline, and waves were crashing in and crashing in, and everything around this one big rock in the center of the beach was being washed away. And the waves would come in and whatever was there was being washed away. And then I just saw a picture of myself on top of this one rock. And a big wave comes crashing in and it was over my head. And, and, it, and in, this, in this picture I was drowning in the water and I couldn't breathe. But I was on the rock. And finally the wave receded. And I was still there and everything else was washed away. And the reason I was still there was because I was on the rock. And the Spirit just whispered to my heart, that's it, Danny, that's the answer. Stay on the rock. Yes, the waves will crash down, and sometimes it'll feel like you can't breathe, but you won't be washed away. And that's what Jesus promised. Those who build their life on the sand, when the wind comes, the waves rise, you will be washed away. But the man who builds his house upon the rock, Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone, when the wind howls, and the waves crash down, you will not be washed away because your life will be held firm by the chief cornerstone who is Jesus Christ. So friend, I'll close one last time with this question. Which one will Jesus be to you? Will he be your stumbling stone or will he be your chief cornerstone? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you humbled today. We are humbled because we know apart from you, we are lost. Apart from you, Lord, there is nothing we can bring. Not one act of righteousness can we bring before our holy God and say, here, here, I have something to bring that's, that's worth something. That's worth me entering your presence. Lord, they're all like filthy rags. But Jesus, you in your perfect righteousness, you have done it all. And now... By simple faith, you say, receive this gift of my righteousness for yourself. Put on my perfect spotless robes, not from something you've done, but from what I've done. And in me, you will find righteousness that comes from above. And therefore, we can go before God, spotless, without fault, fully justified. We thank you for this great gift. Lord, if there's anyone here today who has been challenged by this word because of pride in their heart, a refusal to humble themselves, to receive your gift by faith alone in Christ alone. Oh Lord, would you break down that last barrier of resistance? Holy Spirit, would you smash it to the ground so that in humbleness and humility of heart, they can simply come before you saying, Lord, I have nothing to bring. I am a sinner in need of a Savior. Would you save me? And Lord, I know from a sincere, genuine heart, you delight in that prayer. And you will save. You will forgive in full. And you will dress in clothes of righteousness. 
And Father, for those of us who have been struggling with trying to have it both ways, you and our pleasures, you and the world, oh Father, today I pray, would you again convict us of this and recognize that when we come to the cross, it's an invitation to come and die so that we may truly live the full life, the abundant life with Christ. Help us in this, we pray. And Lord, we thank you that last of all, it is you, our chief cornerstone, who anchors our life firm in the storm around us. Whatever this life throws our way, no matter how fierce that surf pounds down over our heads, Lord, when it washes away, we won't be washed away with it because we are anchored firm and secure on you, our rock, our cornerstone, the reference for everything in our lives. We honor you, and Lord, we build our lives upon you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.